You can have your Bibles open, Galatians chapter 2. Before we get to Galatians, I just want to read uh, something that Jesus said in, in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. By definition, truth is narrow. Error is broad. Truth is precise. Error is vast. Truth is always in a minority. Error is pervasive. Truth is constantly under attack, while error is popular and widely accepted. That's certainly the case when it comes to spiritual matters and especially to biblical Christianity. There are countless beliefs that wear the label of Christian. But if you examine those beliefs in the light of the Bible, they are anything but Christian. That was true in New Testament times. It is even more true in our own times. Today we return to our study in Galatians. And in chapter 1, we learn that Paul says that his apostleship, his commissioning, was from God, not from men. He said that the gospel he proclaimed was by divine revelation, not human invention. He says that there is only one gospel, and any other message that departs from the one gospel that bears the label of gospel is a lie. Notice what he says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace, in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now listen to his strong language. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Let him be destined for destruction. Paul was confident that the message he had received through Revelation was the true message. And that's why he did not immediately go to Jerusalem to receive confirmation from the other apostles. In fact, it was really 17 years later, 14 plus 3, that he went there. 
But he knew what it was to be opposed at every turn. One of the constants in his life as an apostle was the incessant, insidious work of false teachers. Everywhere he went, they stalked him. He would go into an area, he would preach the gospel. God, by his grace, would save many, many people. Then Satan's emissaries would quickly follow sowing the seeds of false doctrine. The ones that troubled Paul the most were the Judaizers. They were determined to incorporate the Old Testament ceremonial law into the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially the need for circumcision. If you look in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Back in chapter 5 and verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, if you still believe you need to be circumcised according to Old Testament law, you've destroyed the cross of Christ. Then Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now now being perfected by the flesh? So they insisted, the Judaizers, that if you did not participate in these rituals, you fell short of salvation. Their position is quite similar to those who in our own day say that unless you're baptized and take communion, You can't be saved. We believe that baptism is really important, following faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe that the Lord's table, that the communion, should be practiced on a regular basis as we do in our church. That we remember the Lord's death until he comes. That's an ordinance for the church. But neither baptism or communion are essential for salvation. Paul proclaimed that that justification was by grace through faith apart from works. His opponents maintain your message is incomplete. You need to add rituals. You need to add circumcision to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The false teachers argued that Paul was not really an apostle. He was a staunch opponent of Jesus until after the resurrection of Jesus. So this Johnny-come-lately was not authentic, so they said. Furthermore, the Judaizers boasted that they had the support of the Jerusalem leaders, Peter, James, and John. That was patently false, but that was their claim. So put yourself in the place of the Galatians. They'd heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. Many had believed his message. 
the Judaizers come along and say, no, 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 there's something more. You haven't done enough. For you men, there's a ritual you have to participate in. Now, were there two different Gospels or one Gospel? That was the dilemma the Galatians were facing. One commentator says, if one apostle preaches one Gospel and another apostle preaches another Gospel, the foundation of the church is cracked and the whole edifice will eventually collapse. So the Galatians needed to be convinced that the Judaizers did not represent the leadership in Jerusalem and that what they were saying was untrue. Paul is urging the Galatians to stand firm in the wonderful freedom of the gospel and not to submit to the legalistic enslavement demanded by the Judaizers. We have all heard the oft-quoted statement, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. While eternal vigilance is the price of theological integrity, of spiritual vitality, and of Christian liberty, The truth of the gospel will never be so obscure that it does not exist in the world. God will allow that. However, the sad truth is that decades ago, theological liberalism rejected the divine inspiration of the scriptures and departed from the truth of the gospel. Now, what troubles me is that much of evangelicalism is following the very same path. If a local church is not vigilant, the truth of the gospel is lost to that church. And the issue at issue is the souls of men and women and the life of the church. So we must be unswavering, inflexible in our proclamation of the gospel. We need to understand what the gospel is, and we'll go into that in a few moments. We need to be convinced that there is only one gospel for all people in all places at all times. So the message of Galatians is for us. Well, first of all, let's look at at the unity of the gospel. He deals with that in Galatians 2, 1 to 3. So after 14 years, he mentions three years uh, up in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, or uh, 18. He was went into uh, Arabia, probably by himself for many of those years, to learn from the Lord, to get the gospel implanted in his thinking. That was three years. Then 14 years later, 17 years in total, he goes to Jerusalem to meet the leadership there. Why did Paul make this trip? He takes Titus, Barnabas and Titus with him. What was his intent? Why did he want to speak privately to James and Peter and John? Well, he didn't go there because he had second thoughts about his message and wanted to be sure he had it right. He didn't go for that reason. That would have played into the hands of the Judaizers 
because it was their intent to plant seeds of doubt in the Galatian church, but in the mind of Paul also. They wanted Paul to waffle concerning his message. So Paul did not go up to Jerusalem to receive instruction from Peter and James and John. He went up because of revelation. He went up because Jesus told him to go. And he was absolutely confident about the message he was proclaiming. He said he he set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. See his stance? His stance isn't, no, I'm not sure if I got this right, Peter, James, and John, and, and, and you're the big shots in the church. I'm going to sit down and listen. You instruct me. That's not what Paul did. Paul instructed them. Paul said, this is what I have received by revelation. This is the gospel God gave to me. So he met privately with those who seemed to be influential. And we know from verse 9 that it was Peter and Cephas and John. But why did he take Titus with him? Why Titus? Well, Titus was exhibit A. Titus was a Gentile, not a Jew. And he had not been circumcised according to Old Testament law. And yet he was a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, you can be sure this rankled the Judaizers. Titus needs to be circumcised. He's not fully saved unless he's circumcised. You can be sure that was, they were pounding away at that thought. So Paul takes Titus with him to meet the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, what would they say? What would they say? Well, notice in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul doubtless laid the gospel before Peter, James, and John. They confirmed he was right on with his message, and the Judaizers were wrong in their message. Then we had that little statement to make sure I had, was not running or had run in vain. I don't think this in any way suggests that Paul is second-guessing himself. He's not saying, man, I hope I got it right. Let me talk to the big shots in Jerusalem because I sure want to have this message right. No, Paul had not failed to understand the gospel. He was not questioning himself. He had no doubt about the source of his message or the content of his message. After 17 years of ministry, Paul met with these influential leaders to declare his message, not to have it evaluated. He is saying, this is the gospel. This is what God told me. Now, does that square with what you've been preaching? So he is confirming that there is only one gospel. He had it right. The big shots in Jerusalem had it right. The Judaizers had it wrong. So Peter, James, John, and Paul are united 
in their message. There's no fractured foundation here. The opponents of Paul were out of sync. The message they proclaimed was a departure from the gospel. And the Judaizers needed to know that. So the Galatians are warned, don't accept another gospel. You've heard the true gospel. We need the same boldness and conviction today because the gospel is hopelessly distorted in much of Christianity. We have the prosperity gospel. I call it the gospel of greed. It's a man-centered message of materialism, but it's not the gospel. We have the liberal gospel. Everybody is good. God loves everybody. Jesus is not a substitute. He's an example. And if you're sincere about your spirituality, whatever it is, Christian or otherwise, God will let you into his heaven. And we should not try to convert anybody. That's liberal gospel. There's the emergent church gospel, at least some in the emergent church, which says truth is not absolute. So we should not be dogmatic. We should discuss. We should not proclaim. We should debate. There's a sacramental gospel, which is so common within Christianity, that the sacraments of the church, primarily baptism and communion, save people in and of themselves. Just go through the ritual and you're in. That's a sacramental gospel, but that's not the New Testament gospel. There is the social gospel, where the focus is on changing the economic conditions of people, the disenfranchised, poor people, to church involvement and government involvement, saving society, not saving souls. None of these are the truth. None of these have any saving merit. So what is the gospel? What is it? It centers on God and what he has done for us in Christ, in sending his son to be a substitute, in taking upon himself the wrath of God that belongs on us. God is holy, man is sinful, and man can do nothing to save himself. The contribution we make to salvation is zero. Sinful man is hostile to God, and thus under divine condemnation apart from Christ. But God in love sent Jesus Christ into the world, He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross in our place. The wrath of God fell on him where it should have fallen on us. And we can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. We can have our sins forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. But it's all of grace. Furthermore, Christ rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's at the Father's right hand interceding for us. And we are united with the risen Christ the moment we trust in him alone for salvation. Our eternal destiny is secure because we are one with Christ. 
Nothing can be added to that gospel. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel. That is the biblical gospel. That is Christianity. And as a church, we must resolve never to depart from that message. And for over 80 years, we have not. Now, we can enter into fellowship with other denominations and other churches and other individuals who believe this gospel. We cannot enter into fellowship in the biblical understanding of that term with those who reject that gospel. So there's a great divide between evangelical teaching, biblical teaching, and liberal teaching. And the divide is not caused by us who believe the Bible, it's caused by those who reject the Bible. That's where the division occurs. Now, I can be friends, and I am friends, with non-evangelical pastors. I have no trouble being friends with non-evangelicals. I cannot have fellowship with non-evangelicals because we don't believe in the same gospel. Here's what one writer says, neither circumcision nor baptism nor church membership nor observance of the sacraments nor adherence to the law can add one drop of righteousness to our standing with God. For in Jesus Christ, our standing is complete. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ, we are justified before God. So there is unity in the gospel for those who believe the gospel. But there's opposition to the gospel. Paul was well received in Jerusalem, as was Titus, though he was a Greek and had not been circumcised. Paul feels compelled to explain to the Galatians why he felt it necessary to meet with the leadership in Jerusalem after all these years. It was because of opposition to himself as an apostle and because of opposition to the message that he preached. And he's not about to cave. He will not compromise. He will not alter his message. So we use this kind of cloak and dagger language to describe those who had infiltrated the church. Notice in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. How did these people wiggle their way into the church? The answer is simple. They presented themselves as true followers of Jesus. And initially, they sounded genuine because they did, in some sense, proclaim Christ. And once they gained a foothold and were accepted into the local fellowship, they began to propagate their message. Their true colors began to show. When Paul found out what was happening, he sprang into action. He pulls no punches. He sees them for who they are. He calls them false brethren. I think this means he had no confidence of their profession of faith. He does not believe they are truly saved because they do not believe the gospel. 
Well, you say, what gives Paul the right to draw this a conclusion? Isn't he being harsh and judgmental? No. He's being wise and discerning. The issue is clear. If you add anything to the gospel, if you take away anything from the gospel, you do not proclaim the gospel. Salvation is through grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. And this applies to the Wetaskiwin Mission Church, as well as any other church. It's imperative that the leadership in this church is on constant guard against false teachers who could worm their way into our midst, spiritual spies who infiltrate the church and cause immeasurable damage. Well, what were these gospel opponents attempting to do? Well, Paul says in verse 4, so that they may bring us into slavery. Into slavery to what? The Old Testament law in that case. The Jews bore this yoke for hundreds of years. Through obedience to the law, they tried to make themselves righteous before God, and they failed. It was a hopeless, futile effort. The law, whether you're thinking of the Ten Commandments or just all the commandments in the Old Testament, never saved a soul. It was not intended to. One of the hardest things for any person to accept is their total inability to do anything to make themselves right with God. See, we always want to do something. We always want to participate in a ritual or perform some good works or join a certain church. Anything that we think will impress God and kind of qualify us for salvation. People say, well, God helps those that help themselves. That's the most commonly held belief on the planet. But it's totally erroneous when it comes to salvation. We don't have to do anything to help God save us. We have to receive the gift, accept his grace, but do something, ritual or otherwise, no. The Judaizer says you cannot be saved without circumcision. The popular teaching today is you cannot be saved without baptism and communion or the Eucharist or the Mass, whatever you want to call it. In fact, what is taught today is that if you participate in the rituals, you are in automatically. That is false gospel. And it is spiritually and eternally fatal. Well, Paul is adamant. Notice what he says in verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He is resolved not to budge, not to compromise, not to acquiesce, not to sort of, well, let's not rock the boat here, let's be friendly. He said, I will not do that. Because we're talking about salvation. We're talking about heaven or hell here. And you can't mess with the gospel. Once you start moving off this foundation, everything begins to crumble. 
a little compromise here, a little compromise there, and soon you have no gospel at all. While he is entrusted with the gospel, Paul meets with the key apostles in the Jerusalem, and that meeting turned out as he hoped it would. They stood firmly with him. Yes, Paul, you are preaching the gospel. The same gospel, you are preaching the same gospel to the Gentiles as we are preaching to the Jews. No difference. He talks about the circumcised, which would be the Jews, the uncircumcised, which would be the Gentiles. Different audience, same message. The culture may change some of the ways we use to present the gospel, but it never changes the essence of the gospel. And the essence of the gospel is we are justified by faith apart from works. Now, Paul is not being cocky or rude when he states, those who seem to be influential added nothing to me. What he is saying is that he as an apostle is on par with them, and his message is on par with their message. What he proclaimed, they proclaimed. So, they are in agreement. Verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised or to the Jews. One writer says, It's a joyous fellowship that we enjoy with diverse groups of believers across the globe to be entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can enjoy fellowship, whether we're in a different part of the world or whether the world comes to us. Our skin colors vary, our backgrounds are different, our cultures are vastly different, our languages, the colloquialisms we use, strange to one another, but we stand united in Christ. And when Carol and I went to India in 2001, the greatest blessing of our heart was to say, wow, these people have strange culture and strange food. They love Jesus. They believe the gospel. And we felt the unity in Christ right from the get-go. They made one request of the Apostle Paul, and he was eager to practice it. Verse 10 Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And of course, if you read the writings of Paul, he was instrumental in taking up offerings for for poor people. Uh, Social action is not the gospel. It is certainly an implication of the gospel. It is an application of the gospel. The most generous people on the planet are evangelical Christians. We are. When it comes to Haiti or other places around the world, the people that give the most to help the poor are those who believe in Jesus Christ, which is as it ought to be. People from liberal churches give far less. Well, I close with this quote from Phil Newton, uh, pastor of Southwoods Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Notice I'm not ending with a quote by John Piper. 
I, I do read other authors. Listen to what Phil Newton says. Let us never be so narrow to think that no one else has the truth of the gospel. Nor let us be so undiscerning to think that every group that claims to be Christian proclaims the truth of the gospel. Instead, let us have an ear for the truth of the gospel and encourage all who stand upon the truth of Scripture in dependence upon the power of the Spirit in proclaiming the saving message of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. Let us stand firmly for the truth of the gospel in the face of those who would water it down or compromise its solitary nature. Its solitary nature. Here's the gospel. Faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone. That is the worldwide gospel. No matter what color, what language, what culture, that is the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? If a loved one, if a friend were to say, explain the gospel. What is the gospel? What would you say? I hope you would talk about God being holy, man being sinful, about Jesus being sent, lived a sinless life, died as our substitute on the cross and took upon himself the wrath of God and God's judgment fell upon Jesus so that all who believe in him are not condemned. And if we trust in him, we receive as a free gift of God's grace forgiveness and eternal life. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We need to say a whole lot more. Do you and I possess a discerning spirit to detect a false gospel? We need to know the truth. And I guess most importantly, do you believe the gospel? Well, you say, I like Metaskwin Mission Church, but that's not my question. I love the music. That's not my question. I even like Pastor Dan's preaching and, lesser degree, Pastor Wayne's preaching. I'm not asking you that. Do you believe the gospel? Or are you trusting in infant baptism? Are you trusting in adult baptism? Are you trusting in good works? Are you trusting in church membership? Don't trust in those things. Trust only in the saving merits of Jesus Christ and believe in him. Let us pray. Father, we are so blessed to have the Bible, to have the gospel. It behooves us, every one of us here, to know what the gospel is and to be so grateful for your grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, if someone here is led by your spirit to the conviction, you know what, I think I've been trusting in something other than what Jesus did on the cross. And may they right now repent of their sins, cast themselves upon your mercy, go to the cross in their heart and mind, and receive the gift of eternal life, and you will grant it to them. What a loving, merciful, gracious God you are. In Jesus' name, amen.